speak of the Savior. There he goes again. Probably being all preachy-like, too, I'll bet. Did you hear what he was saying about gouging your eyes out? What? Yeah, said if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, it's the same as committing adultery. Did Jesus really say that? And the bad news is that Jesus really said that. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we do talk about that, uh, again, one more time, this sermon is rated PG-13. Uh, so if you have a, a young child in here, this would be a perfect time for you to go down the aisle and take this in from the lobby at our coffee shop. That would be great. Or, uh, you know, uh, even take your kids to the, the children's environments kind of across the way there. They are amazing, like fine-tuned for your children. They'll be talking about age-appropriate topics because we are going to get very, very frank about adult topics today. Okay, or you could keep them in here, all right? Just know that if you keep them in here, you will also be having the talk with them in about 30 minutes after this is over. So it's up, totally up to you. You know, Jesus can get this talk started for you today, or you could do that on your own time and on your own terms. So uh, that's, uh, that's where we're at. Okay, uh, now uh, we're gonna wait just about a second or two for anybody to make their way out, that is. And, uh, you know, why don't you tell your neighbor a joke? <laughs> okay, now I need no other hook to kind of bring you in on today's topic other than to simply read for you what Jesus actually said 2,000 years ago. So uh, Matthew chapter five, verse 27. And uh, just real quick before I read it, I want you to know that I will never forgive David Vaughn for giving me this topic. All right. <laughs> the words of Jesus here, red letters. Uh, he said, you have heard that the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, which I don't I guess you have a good eye, cause you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And uh, oh, also if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell, the words of Jesus. Now, if you weren't paying attention, now you are, because it's like adultery, lust, sex, hell. Okay, welcome to church. And um, <laughs> from this passage, I think we learn a lot of things about Jesus and his perspective on sex, uh, but there are three things I wanna focus in on today that I think are especially appropriate for our particular cultural moment that we're in. Uh, one, two, and three, for those of you who take notes, you're gonna wanna write these down. One, uh, we're gonna look at how Jesus thinks sex is a way bigger deal than oftentimes we do. That's one, Jesus thinks it's a way bigger deal than we do. Two, uh, sexual purity isn't about the rules. It's point number two. Uh, we'll see Jesus we'll explain that in just a second. And three, uh, we, we see Jesus say here that sexual struggles or sexual sin are specific to a, like a very specific group of people. Uh, and we're gonna identify that group of people at, at the end of the message. But one, two, and three. One, sex is a way bigger deal than you think. Two, sexual purity. It's not about rules. And three, sexual struggles are common among a very specific group of people. You ready? Okay, let's start off with the first point. Sex is a way bigger deal than you think. This is what Jesus is saying here. Because did you hear what he said? He said from something as home-wrecking and heartbreaking as adultery to something as covert and seemingly harmless as lust in your mind, it's all a big deal. 
it all can be a problem. In fact, Jesus goes on to invite you that if you have trouble putting your hands on anyone else other than your spouse, to just go ahead and stick those hands out and whack, whack, cut them off. Because it would be better for you in the end to just not have hands. He also invites you that uh, if uh, you have a problem putting your eyes on anyone else other than your spouse, to just go ahead and, you know, just gouge. That's probably not what an eye gouge sounds like, but we don't even want to imagine that. But just gouge it out. He says, gouge it out. Because it'd be better for you to have one eye, no eyes, in the end. Now, this is not the nice Jesus that we've come to know, is it? And love. Come to me, all you who are weary with heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And whack, chop off your hands. Like, this is not... I mean, this is not what you, you think of when you think of the Jesus with the lamb in one hand and the child in the other. But the reality is, is that this is exactly what Jesus says and we have to reckon with it. Now, I believe that in this particular passage and in others, Jesus is using uh, the rhetorical tactic of exaggeration. Exaggeration, because he wants to create shock and all. He doesn't really want you to be you know, chopping off hands and gouging out eyes among one another. In fact, we know this because in John chapter eight, Jesus is confronted with a woman caught in adultery. Do you remember this story? Everybody's about to stone her. And this is what Jesus doesn't say to her. He doesn't say to her, come here, child of God, put out your hand, whack, and chop her hand. No, we'll get to that story later, but he actually offers to her grace and truth and equal doses. And I think that's what he would offer to you today, but you still have to reckon with the shock and awe in this passage, what he actually says here. In fact, I think he says what he says here to get our attention when it comes to sex. And does he have your attention? Because I think Jesus would tell us that sex has some very, very specific boundaries about them. And Jesus takes these boundaries very, very serious. Now, as soon as I say that though today in this particular cultural moment, uh, I can feel our culture like rolling its eyes at me, like a 15-year-old girl, just like, uh, because in our culture today, sex has been stripped naked of all of its boundaries. At one time, about 100 years ago, uh, sex was, was really regarded to only be exercised in the context of commitment, but now it's moved from commitment to casual, right? From forever to whoever and whenever. And so that's why anytime this conversation comes up with me and some of my friends who aren't Christians, they always kind of like, they roll their eyes. They're like, Tyler, this is, this is what's wrong with Christianity. You guys take sex way too seriously. It's just not that big of, of a, it's a, it's an appetite. It's a physical appetite that should be fed like anything else. You just feed the appetite. Once you Christians get your minds around that, you know, get your heart trapped around that, then, you know, like maybe you won't feel so much pressure and tension with our culture. Now, I understand where they're coming from, but uh, I think that that's just an excuse a lot of us create or, or lean into uh, today in order to sleep with whoever we want to. Because if you actually think about that, saying that sex is, is just physical or sex is, is just some sort of appetite to be fed, if you actually think about it for a second, I think you'll realize it's painfully obvious that couldn't be any further from the truth. And I wanna show you that. And I'm not even gonna quote any Bible verses to you because you may be a Christian, you may not. I just wanna ask you a few very, very uncomfortable questions that I think will prove the point. Here's the first one. Uh, if sex is just physical, then why is sexual assault so much more devastating than assault? If it's just physical. Is it the word rape, it, it sends chills down my spine. Why is sexual assault so shrouded in secrecy? Why is it punished harsher 
in courts of law than just assault, mugging someone if sex is just physical. Here's the second question. If sex is just physical, why do adults who are sexually abused as children find it so difficult to just move on, just move on already, right? Now, as soon as I say that, it sounds so insensitive, especially to any of you who have ever struggled through that or know someone who has, because you know how sexual abuse has this ugly way of rearing its head in the subconscious of an adult 30, 40, 50 years later, even. How about this next one? If sex is just physical, uh, why is it that most people's greatest regrets involve something sexual? I mean, can't you remember back when you were in like college or you know, like in your high school and your friend kind of leaned over to you and said, I have to tell you a secret and, and you gotta promise you, can't, you won't tell anybody. Okay, I promise. Let me tell you what they didn't say to you next. They didn't say, I cheated on my physics exam and nobody knows. I was like, that's not what comes next, right? And you know that. And I know that. How about this one? Uh, if sex is just physical, why do husbands and wives feel so betrayed when their spouses cheat? It's like the unforgivable sin in, in marriage almost, right? Hold on, come on now. I thought it was just an appetite. I thought it was just a physical appetite. I mean, you let your wife eat with other people, right? Or how about this last one? Uh, If sex is just physical, uh, why are you so curious about the sexual history of the last person that you dated? And if you weren't curious, it was probably because you didn't want them to be curious about yours. See, don't you see? Don't you see? It's just a little logic, just a little thinking. And I think it becomes painfully obvious fast that it's not just physical. Our culture doesn't actually regard it as just a, a physical appetite. It's actually a really, really big deal. And Jesus told us it is a big deal and so it should be respected appropriately. One Christian author said it like this once and I think it sums up the Christian sex ethic well. He said, sex is both wonderful and powerful, both wonderful and powerful. And the wonderful part makes it worth pursuing while the powerful part makes it worth respecting. I mean, it is wonderful, it's wonderful. It is a good thing and a God thing. From the very beginning of God's story, he creates Adam and Eve and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. This is a part of God's intention for the married couple. It's wonderful. This week I got on Google and uh, I actually Googled uh, how many calories do you burn uh, kissing? Um, which, uh, by the way, that is, uh, some of you are laughing because you know that's a very dangerous thing to Google. Um, <laughs> I'll say this, this is like the, the 11th commandment for, for millennials. Thou shalt not Google stupid stuff. But I did, uh, and uh, I actually found on a blog that you could burn, um, you can burn five calories a minute, just kissing. Five calories a minute. That's 300 calories an hour, kissing. Why, why are the men not writing this down? I mean. Some of you guys are always like, honey, I don't want to go to church. I don't learn anything in church. Come on, dudes. Like, you should be, that's, that's uh, okay. If you kiss for three hours, you can then eat a carton of Grater's ice cream guilt-free. <laughs> so sex, is, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, don't get me wrong. But I think our culture's got the wonderful part down. Our culture realizes that. We've hypersexualized everything. Sex is treated as a God almost, but it's the, it's the powerful part that our culture has seemed to 
forget. And the lack of respect is destroying us because it's a very, very powerful thing. Uh, In the 1960s, there was this movement, social scientists called uh, the sexual liberation movement. There are lots of factors that played into it. Uh, We don't have enough time to to lay all those out. But basically uh, the idea that was that was propagated then has sort of become mainstream today. It's this idea that if we'd quit treating sex like it's a big deal, then it wouldn't be a big deal. We just need to liberate it from all those old fashioned and antiquated religious restraints that not just Christianity, but all religions seem to put on sex. This was the idea. Now, here's the, the interesting thing. 70 years in retrospect now, we can kind of look back at the sexual liberation movement And we can ask ourselves, how has it gone? The idea has pretty much become the commonplace cultural idea. So you tell me, 60, 70 years later, uh, how has it gone? Is America healthier or less healthy? Does it seem like sex is more functional or dysfunctional in our culture? Have things gotten better or worse since sex was liberated? See, I think it would be really, really difficult to make an argument for healthier or better. In fact, I've seen a lot of suffering shrouded around sex. And sadly, most of the the pain and brunt of that suffering has fallen on the shoulders of women and children in our society. Still today, every year, thousands upon thousands of babies are aborted. And um, in almost all, not all those situations, but in the vast majority of them, uh, it's because sex was taken outside of its appropriate context. It's a powerful thing. It can create life. In our country today, there's a missing father epidemic. There are more single homes, mostly single mom homes, than ever before. Why? Because in most of those cases, sex was taken outside of its appropriate context, right? Uh, In our country today, marriages are falling apart. Statistics say that over half of marriages now are failing. And I wonder why. Maybe because there's a trillion dollar pornography industry or maybe because love has been described now as something that you can just kind of fall in and fall out of whenever you feel like. How about this one? Uh, Over the last couple years, there's been this brave groundswell of women who have begun to rise up and say, things have not gotten better for us. A popular level is called the Me Too movement. Some of you have heard of this. Uh, These women have risen up and they've kind of said, hey, you know, over the last several years, powerful men have uh, used our bodies and sex against us. They've said, hey, if you want to get where you want to go, you want the promotion, you want the raise, you want to rise up the org chart, then you got to give me what I want. You want what you want, give me what I want. And these women are saying, that's not right. And you know what? They are right. There is no excuse ever for sexual abuse. And the church should say that loud and clear. But don't you see? Okay, you know what I think we need? I think we need another sexual revolution. But not one that liberates sex and all the restraints from it, but rather respects it in its appropriate context. See, sex is like a fire. In the right context, it can warm the home. But outside of the right context, it can burn the home down. And that's what I think we're seeing. It's wonderful, but it's also powerful. So, so powerful. 
Now, one more thing on this. We've got a little bit of time. Um, single people in the room. Uh, young people, actually, look up here right now. I want, to talk, I want to talk especially to you for just a second. Um, so probably the best argument that I've ever heard to take sex outside of its God-given context um, has been from some of my single friends who, who use the sexual compatibility argument. Have you, have you heard this before, sexual compatibility? Basically, they say, uh, okay, sex is wonderful and it is powerful, so that's why I should sleep with my boyfriend or my girlfriend before we get married to make sure that we are sexually compatible down the road. Now, I, I think that's a deeper level of logic. I still don't agree with it. In fact, I think it's another one of those excuses we sort of manufacture in order to sleep with whoever we want to, to sleep with, if you think about it. But I'll, I'll give you, it's a little deeper level of logic. At least you're acknowledging the power of sex. But here's the deal. Can we talk about sexual compatibility for a second? Single people, come on, look at Richard for just a second. Let's, let's talk about it. Because this is just a reality. This is science, okay? Here's the science of the matter. You are literally sexually compatible with millions upon millions of people. Millions. It's called human anatomy. <laughs> and do I need to draw you a picture? <laughs> Good, because I'm not going to, all right? I'm not, that, it's, come on, think about it here. Like, it's just, it's just great. You know, you, know, you know what you need? You know what a far better predictor of relational success down the road is than sexual compatibility? Relational compatibility. Far better predictor. So seek that out. And what you'll find is if you find somebody you're relationally compatible with, uh, it'll make the whole sexual compatibility thing easier if you have troubles. Now, uh, one more thing about the, the sexual compatibility piece here. Um, so, uh, no, we don't have time. Let's move on. Okay, second point, second point. Now, okay, let's do it. We, you guys, we guys got anywhere to be? Okay. So what I've found is is that the reason why we get involved in these relationships and get tied up and, and we, we test out the whole sexual compatibility thing is, is that we want, we want to, to really see if this person's gonna be right for us down the road. But what having sex with somebody does, especially before you're married, is it actually distorts your objectivity on that person. It actually does the exact opposite of what you want, right? You're trying to figure out, is this the right person? But it distorts, you end up overinflating the good things about them and ignoring the bad things about them. Have you ever worked with high school or college students before? Okay, so I've seen this play out hundreds of times because I've, I have. And here's what I found. A lot of times I'll, I'll have this, you know, this 20 something girl who's dating an absolute scumbag. I mean, he's a butthead. She's prettier than him, nicer than him. He, he cheats on her, he's dishonest. And everybody in her life, her parents, her friends, her pastor, no, you're better, than, like you deserve better than this. In fact, I've had the guts to say this to some young people before, you, you deserve better than him. You deserve better than her. And what's interesting is every time I say that, they agree, they're like, yeah, you're probably right. But then they won't get out of the relationship. Now, you know what I found? In 99% of those situations, really in, for me personally, in every single one of those situations, you know what I found? I found that they're sleeping together. And that makes a whole lot of sense to me. See, God created sex for two reasons. Uh, one, it's, it's life generative. It's reproductive, it creates life. And two, it's also a relational adhesive. God created it in order to stick the husband to the wife, to stick the wife to the husband. And yet if you have sex with somebody who's not your husband or not your wife, sometimes you get stuck to people you're not supposed to be stuck to. So, okay, it's wonderful and it's powerful. It's wonderful and it's powerful. We got the wonderful part right as a culture. We don't need to put much effort into that. 
But my suggestion to our culture would be, let's rediscover the power of sex. Let's respect that. Let's treat it as the sacred thing that it is. Okay, that's first. Sex is a way bigger deal than we think. We gotta move now. Second point, okay? You guys told me to go into it further, so I did. Second, okay, uh, sexual purity is not about the rules. This is what Jesus teaches. It's not about the rules. Uh, Let's read it. Uh, read the passage again. Matthew 5, 27, Jesus says, you have heard, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say. I want you to lock that into your mind because we're gonna come back to that. Now, uh, this passage right here in Matthew chapter five comes within a larger sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called one of the greatest pieces of ethical discourse of all time. You can be a Christian, a non-Christian. Most people recognize this sermon Jesus preaches here as uh, something that's truly great. Now, from 521 to about 548, that's what it is, 521 to 548 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this interesting thing that he does. He uses this parallelism almost of you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, to address the hot topics of his day. First, he addresses adultery. He says, you've heard us said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even lust. But he also addresses other topics. Uh, He says, you have heard uh, that it was said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry. Reconcile yourself with friends. You've heard that it was said, keep your promises. But I say to you, be honest all the time. You've heard that it was said, uh, eye for an eye, retaliation is good. But I say, like, don't hold it against evildoers. Don't resist them. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbors. But I say, even love your enemies. This is what Jesus, you've heard, but I say. Now, most scholars agree that when Jesus says you have heard, what he's referring to uh, is the scribal elite of his day, the Pharisees, the scribes. See, during Jesus' time, 90% of the population couldn't read. So if they wanted access to the Hebrew scriptures, they'd have to go somewhere or to someone who could. So oftentimes these scribes, these Pharisees would stand up, they would read the scriptures to people and then they would interpret them for them. So when Jesus says you have heard, what he's referencing is, well, a Pharisee's interpretation of the law, the scribal elite's interpretation of it. But then every time he says, but I say, and he offers you his reinterpretation of it. Now there are two main points of contrast that I believe you should notice between the scribal elite and Jesus. The first one is this, Jesus is way harder than them. He's way harder. Every time he actually ups the ante, people are like, you know what I love about Jesus? He just frees you from all these religious restrictions. Well, sort of, but not really. In Jesus' mind, freedom isn't the absence of all restrictions, it's the presence of the right ones. And he kind of throws down here. Now here's the second point of contrast I want you to notice. The Pharisees offer a great love of the law But every time in Jesus' reinterpretation, he offers the law of love. It's the difference between love of law versus law of love. Jesus' foundation of his his ethical framework is the law of love. If you read Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, a lawyer once comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest command in the law? And this is what Jesus replies. He says, it's really just one law, two targets. Love God and love others. Do you remember this? Love God and love others. And then he actually has the audacity to say all of the Hebrew scriptures, all of the Old Testament, all the laws and the prophets you find there actually are summed up in that one command, two targets. They're actually fulfilled. They hang from that one command, two targets, love God, 
love others. The foundation for him is love. It's always love. So do you see what he's doing here? He takes this law or this interpretation of the law from the Pharisees, takes it through his love filter, and then you get Jesus's intention every time. Now, I think that's better. I think that's better than the Pharisees. And you know why I think, uh, you know why I think a, an ethical framework built on love rather than law is better? Because when it comes to law, we're all really, really good at finding loopholes around the law. In fact, it's almost like when we were young, we were born with the ability to find loopholes around all the rules and all the laws, weren't we? Oh, you, you, said no, you, you said no talking, teacher. That's why we're whispering. <laughs> oh, you said no running. That's why we're skateboarding. You know? Oh, you said be home at nine, but you didn't say p.m. or a.m., mom. What's for breakfast? Okay, this is, this is what kids do. And they're, and they're good at it. They're good at it. This is what we do. But what Jesus does is he offers us love rather than law is the commandment. It just seals up all the loopholes. Okay, you know what the, uh, you know what the first loophole is when it comes to adultery, how to get around adultery? It's lust. It's lust. The easiest way to get around adultery is just to commit adultery in your mind. And Jesus says that violates the law of love on all levels. So I'm not down with it. First, it's not loving to your spouse. If your spouse knew that, that you were undressing that other woman, if you were undressing that other man in your mind, they would not feel loved. Second, it's not loving to whatever person you are that you're objectifying. That's what lust is. It's an objectification of someone else. You're basically using someone else as an object for your own self-gratification. You're serving self by using them, and Jesus doesn't call us to do that. He calls us to serve others by offering ourselves. It's the exact opposite of a cross-carrying follower of Jesus. Oh, and also, not only are you not loving your spouse or the person you're objectifying, but you're not loving God either, because it's like you're pushing the limits of his law. Like you're like trying to find, you're trying to find how far can I push it before I step over the line and psh, lightning bolt. You know, like how far can I push God? That's the wrong mindset. Again, having worked with lots of young people, the, the sex question that you'll get all the time is how far is too far? How far is too far? How far can I push it? And every time I've ever gotten that question from a young person, I've always answered it the same way. That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. Because you know what the right question is? It's not how far is too far. It's how do I love God? How do I honor God? And if you ask and answer that honestly, then I think it'll become apparent fast what the right answer is. So okay, you see what Jesus is doing here in this passage? He's telling us sexual purity isn't about rules. It's about relationships. Sexual purity isn't about law. It's about love or that one law of Love, and if you get love right, then you'll be all right. Now, let me be very clear though. When Jesus says love, he doesn't mean like romantic love because some of you are like, we're in love. That's why we should sleep together. We're in love. Like we got matching tattoos and a puppy. Okay, uh, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about chemistry. He's not talking about the fuzzy feeling inside of you. No, Jesus actually has a very specific definition for love. He gives it to us. In John chapter 13, he's at the last supper with his disciples and he says, a new commandment I'm giving you, love one another just as I have loved you. How do we love one another? It's just as I have loved you, love. That's what Jesus says. And then guess what happens a few minutes later? He gets arrested and then crucified the next morning. See, in Jesus' mind, love had a very, very specific shape. It was cross-shaped. 
Now in our culture today, love has become so arbitrary. I love Skyline and pizza and my children. It's like, okay, there's a little bit of a different thing you know, going on there. So Jesus is like, okay, you're using love too casually. I have a very specific definition of love. It's cross-shaped love. It's self-sacrificial, unconditional love. It's the kind of love that always does whatever is best for them, no matter what it takes from me. And that's what he calls us to. Now, uh, that being said, let me get really practical again with this point. And uh, yeah, we got time. Um, let me talk about the most pervasive form of lust in our culture today. Do you know what the most pervasive form of lust is today? You, I'm actually 100% positive that you do. No, because statistics tell us that there are more people in this room right now struggling with it on a monthly basis than that aren't. Uh, it's this thing called pornography. And, uh, well, let me say this. Sex is a good thing. Sex is a God thing. But sex is a very, very difficult thing, as most married couples find out over time. Nobody ever talks about this in church, but let's just talk about it for a second. Did you know that uh, psychologists and counselors have shown through empirical data that when couples are allowed to keep their anonymity, the vast majority of them, not all of them, but the vast majority of them report that sex is a, it's an arena of great diversity in their married relationship. It's hard. Now that can be really, really hard on a woman, but that can be even more difficult on a man because men, from the time we are very young in our culture, we are trained that somehow our masculinity is directly connected to our sexual capability. Which couldn't be any more further from the truth. That's just, that's just outrageous. Okay, Jesus, he's the definition of a man and he didn't sleep with anybody, all right? So it couldn't be any further from the truth, but somehow we're trained in this way. And if I'm honest, that shaped me growing up and it shaped you too. That's why there's so much shame shrouded around your sexual relationship. So here's what a lot of guys do. And it just is what it is. Uh, a lot of guys, instead of facing the issue and talking about it and getting help and working through it with their life uh, or with their w wife, um, a lot of guys turn away from, from sex with their wife, even though it's difficult, to easy sex, also known as pornography. And I'll just go ahead and tell you guys that, that the second you turn to, to pornography, you fast track the dissolution of your marriage. Marriage counselors will tell you that it is job security for them. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a, a blog on pornography. And I didn't think anybody would actually read it, uh, like, or, or at least share it, because who would share a blog on pornography? You know? like, but but it, it actually got a lot of attention. And I wanna read to you an excerpt from it today, because I think it explains a little bit about what makes pornography so dangerous. You see, not only is uh, pornography the objectification of women, not only does it contribute to human trafficking and sex slavery all over the world, and not only is it a violation of Jesus' love law, but when you regularly uh, engage in porn, you are burning these three ideas into your brain. One, real sex doesn't cut it. Two, my wife doesn't cut it. And three, my body comes first. See, just in case no one has ever told you, I'll be the first. Porn creates unrealistic expectations for your spouse, both in your mind and your body. See, people literally do experience chemistry when they're attracted to someone else. When you're attracted to someone, you experience a rise in dopamine and norepinephrine. And that's why you feel this sort of high. Uh, attraction's a drug, 
And so because of all that physical chemistry firing off inside of you, it feels good. Okay, you remember when you two first started dating and you were convinced that no one in the history of love had ever loved like you before. And you held hands everywhere and you had weird pet names and you wrote her poetry even though you'd never actually read a poem. Okay, and you posted awkward stuff on each other's Facebook pages. Guess what? You two were high. Seriously. And uh, you'll thank God later for giving you this excuse. See, part of what caused this euphoria, this stage of crazy love was your brain chemistry. That's why, oh, about 18 months later, you were both puzzled when chemistry started to fizzle. Newsflash, your love didn't go anywhere. You just never knew what normal felt like. Now that's all natural though, as part of attraction and love. Uh, the problem with pornography is that it short circuits this natural chemistry. Think of drug use. Uh, with any drug, the longer you use it, the more you need of it to get less and less of the high, right? Same's true with porn. The longer you use fantasy, the more fantasy you need to feel less of the high that you get from sex. Basically, you build up a tolerance over time. Just like an alcoholic builds up tolerance to beer or an addict builds up tolerance to smack, a pornoholic builds up tolerance to norepinephrine and dopamine. And the result is just sad. It's sad. Because people eventually lose the ability to receive any gratification from real sexual experiences with their normal spouse. Because normal isn't always perfect. Real isn't always what you dream up. And fantasy is impossible to compete with because fantasy is perfect and neither real sex with your wife or your normal wife will ever be perfect. So when you fill your brain with that crap, just know that you're teaching yourself a lesson. One, real sex doesn't cut it. Two, neither does my wife. And three, that's because my body comes first. Now, uh, that being said, I know that lands hard. But for those of you in this room, men or women, for those of you in this room who are uh, struggling with pornography, you need to know that it's an addiction. It's an addiction. And so like any other addiction, it's gonna be really difficult for you to just white knuckle your way out of it. I'm just gonna quit. Because what happens is that might work for a couple weeks, but then stress is gonna happen or some sort of trauma is gonna happen in your life and it's gonna trigger, trigger you and you're gonna find yourself down the same roads once again. So here'd be my encouragement to you. Seek help this week. You need, what you need is a powerful community to come around you. So seek help this week, even from the pastors from this church. You can remain uh, anonymous, some anonymity. Nobody has to know. Nobody else in this church has to know what you're going through, but you need one of our pastors to walk beside you. So reach out this week and get help because you can be helped and there is always hope. And you can find hope here. All right, uh, so one, Jesus tells us that sex is probably a bigger deal than what most of us think. Two, Jesus tells us that sexual purity doesn't really boil down to rules, it boils down to relationships, not law, but love. Uh, here's the last point, and I wanna close with this one. Uh, Jesus actually tells us that sexual struggles and sin are common among a very, very specific group of people. And I wanna reveal to you who that group of people is today. Uh, do you wanna know who's, who's common among what, what people? <clears throat> That would be all people. All people. You see, if Jesus said that lust is adultery, which he did, then that means that every single one of us at some point in our life has committed adultery. Some of us are serial adulterers. I mean, when I read and think about that commandment from Jesus, I just think to myself sometimes, man, that's so hard. That's so difficult. 
Like just read 521 through 48 this weekend and look at all of those commandments. Not just adultery, but lust. Not just murder, but anger. Be reconciled. Not just you know, keep your promises, but keep, keep all, your, all your word. Every word should be honest. Not just your, your neighbors, but love your enemies too. Like when I read these passages, it just lands on me and I'm like, I don't know if I can, I can do that. And for those of you who are kind of sticking your self-righteous nose up in the air like, well, I don't lust and I don't, and I don't, and I don't. Well, guess what Jesus says in the very last verse of this chapter? Matthew chapter five, verse 48. He says, uh, <clears throat> you can put it on the screen. Uh, you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. So let's just all throw ourselves in the center group real quick, okay? Welcome to the party. No perfect people allowed here. Now, again, when I read this though, I think either, okay, either two things are going on here. Either one, when Jesus was preaching this sermon, he was really mad at someone. Like who was he mad, who ticked him off? Somebody in the crowd ticked him off and he's like, ah, you know. Or two, Jesus must be totally out of touch with reality. At least my reality. Because I can't keep these commands. But here's what I know for certain. He is not out of touch with reality. And you know how I know that? Because he stepped in to our reality. See, he didn't have to, but he did. See, while Jesus teaches in ideals, we also know that he recognizes our real. Because he points us to a better future. But 2,000 years ago, he stepped into our present and he lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death we were supposed to die so he, he might bridge the gap between God's ideal and our real. And that's what I love so much about Jesus. He keeps both firmly in hand. You know what Jesus offers that no other major world religion does? He offers both unconditional acceptance and unrelenting challenge at the same time. See, most religions offer unrelenting challenge. Keep these practices, have these virtues. And then your, then your acceptance by God is conditional on keeping those challenges, but not Jesus. He gives you both in full doses from the moment you accept him as savior and Lord, savior and Lord. From the moment you accept Jesus, uh, he says you're 100% saved, you're 100% loved, you're 100% forgiven, you're 100% accepted, you are 100% in. But at the same time, from the moment you accept Jesus, you are 100% a work in progress. You are 100% challenged. I mean, he will poke you and prod you and point you forward. Sometimes he'll put you on his back and carry you forward. And the second you start thinking, I'm pretty good at this, he'll humble you, bring you down into repentance and move you forward once again. Cause that's how he works. Okay, this is what I love about Jesus. Okay, and this gets at the tension. Jesus would look at you today and he would say, I love you just the way you are, but so much so I refuse to leave you that way. And that's the invitation. That's the invitation to everybody in this room. That's the invitation to Christian or not. That's the invitation to sinner, sexual sinner. It doesn't matter. Unconditional acceptance, but unrelenting challenge. So if you're struggling with sexual sin in this room today, I'll give you this closing word. Hear the words of Jesus to the woman caught in adultery, John 8. This woman had been dragged out into the street naked by her neighbors. They had stones in their hand. It was a riot. And they were about to execute her, put her to death. That, but then Jesus stepped in. And he stepped between the woman and the, the crowd. And she said, or he said, uh, he who has no sin, cast the first stone at this woman. And one by one, all the stones dropped until it was just Jesus and her left. And the only reason it was Jesus and her left was because he was the one who could have cast a stone. But you know what he did next? He didn't cast a stone. He didn't cut off her hand. He didn't give her a religious lecture. 
Instead, he offered her unconditional acceptance, but an unrelenting challenge. He said, is no one here left to condemn you? She said, no, my Lord, no one. He said, then neither do I, but go and sin no more. And that's the challenge for all of us today, the invitation for all of us today. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open up the dark spaces in our hearts that are shrouded in the shadows of shame and let your forgiving light and mercy just shine in. But I also pray that you give us the Holy Spirit, a spirit of courage to not just be content and complacent with where we're at, but rather to walk the hard path toward becoming more like you. This side of heaven, we may never capture or attain the ideal, but man, we always wanna be on the journey toward it. We're human, send the Holy Spirit to help because it's so hard for us on our own and move in every heart today so that they might take a step toward you. It's in Jesus' powerful name and we pray, amen. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being here today. We really, really appreciate it. This is a great church. If you're new here, you should come back next week so we don't talk about sex every week. Um, uh, I'll tell you this, there are gonna be some prayer folks come up here to the front of the room, volunteers in the front, some pastors, and um, if you have a question or if you need prayer, come see them after the service, and if not, have a great week. Go out and love God, love others. Thank you. Hey, again, thanks for joining us online today. You'll see links in the notes or the comments section to be able to let us know who you are if you're newer around here and to give generously online if you call Whitewater home. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.